Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Bullshift, the podcast where we talk about personal finance for people that are uh, interested in behavioral issues with a specific influence on, uh, on how optimism bias affects your thinking and how people shift your attention to being bullish. My guest today is Rob Carrick of the Globe and Mail. Rob Carrick is here today, and I'm so excited to have you, Rob. You're you're one of the shining lights in the industry. I was just uh, oh, I was just pulling up your bio, and here it is. It just went uh, blank on me. Here it is. Uh, Rob's a uh, longtime uh, journalist for the Globe and Mail. He uh, started back in the in the business in the 1990s when he covered Bay Street uh, for the business scene in the Canadian Press Service. He's been writing for the Globe for many, many years. He's probably the preeminent personal finance columnist in Canada. He's written many, many books, and he does a great deal of work in helping Canadians to debunk their views on what does and does not work in personal finance. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Glad to do it, John. I wanted to begin by asking you, you're the kind of person who I think would probably have dozens of stories uh, that you could tell in terms of uh, how things work and how industry has evolved since you've started as a finance columnist. I'm wondering if you could maybe share with the people that are listening the things that you would say have changed the most since you started in the business. Well, you know, here's a, here's an interesting little story. When I started uh, writing my column, <clears throat> mutual funds were huge. It was a craze. Like, you know, in, in today's world, you cannot conceive of how wired into mutual funds were uh, when I started. We The Gold Mill used to publish a monthly supplement uh, with mutual fund uh, performance numbers and at the newspaper boxes, which are is a concept a lot of people can't even relate to because they've re- mostly disappeared, but they, the, the papers would sell out. There would, there would not be any editions of the Global Mail available um, uh, are to get these to get these monthly mutual plus supplements. So that was that was a big craze when I was starting on. It was very, you know, the world was very much um, uh, oriented towards advice and there was very little DIY capability. Discount brokers were uh, were uh, just sort of finding their feet, and um, so there was this sort of big gap between the expertise in the industry and all the dumb little investors out there who would just sort of have to take dictation from from the from the advisory world, from the and from the sales world. And you know what I've seen over the years is smarter investors and uh, and. A better, uh, a better behaved investment industry. There, there's, there's, there, the investors are getting smarter. The industry is starting to uh, up its game, and they're moving closer and closer together in their interests. Now, you and I both know there's still a big gap there, though. I'm wondering if you could maybe expand upon that by talking about. Um, you were saying we've all gotten smarter, and it sounds as though investor education has been a big part of that, and a lot of that credit goes to you and people like you. Sure. Rob, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the way you've experienced DIY investing. Uh, you mentioned earlier that <laughs> investors have grown more confident because they've learned more, and a lot of the credit for that goes to you and people like you. I'm wondering if you could maybe offer the uh, the, the perspective of 
what you think about whether or not being more informed, being a better uh, investor is a good thing by itself that we've actually made progress or have uh, investors in general and DIY investors in particular perhaps become overconfident over the past number of years? You know, um, I think the confidence level swings from overconfidence to underconfidence. So, you know, I, I'm, when I say underconfidence, I mean, we see a lot of money sitting in cash type investments right now. I'm not actually not, I don't actually have a big problem with that, but I do think there's probably too much sitting in money, sitting in cash, just like in 2021, it was a great year and overconfidence was a massive problem uh, because everybody just came, became convinced they knew exactly how to invest and they had figured it out. And of course, you know, anything you touched went up then. So um, in general, I'm actually pretty impressed with the, um, with the take that DIY investors have on things. And I document that by, through the rise of exchange traded funds. I mean, when you look at the assets sitting in the, you know, the lowest cost, lowest drama, most understandable, comprehensible index tracking ETFs, they're massive. I know lots, a lot of that's advised money and full credit to advisors for embracing them, but a lot of it is DIY investor money. And um, I think people are doing exactly the right thing. Uh, I'll give you one more piece of, of, uh, of evidence of that. Um, the rise of asset allocation ETFs. In five years, they've gone from zero dollars to uh, to close to about ten billion. I think I'm just going off the top of my head there, but um, um, you know, all the big asset managers in the ETF space offer them, and that retail money is is uh, is flowing in steadily. That is people doing exactly the right thing. So whatever your confidence level, <clears throat> you pick the right uh, you know the right mix for yourself, and I think you've made a good choice. And I I think uh, I think that is sign of that's a sign of people investing intelligently and um, considering their risk level, considering their confidence level and making a sound choice. Can you maybe give an example or two of the sorts of choices people may have made uh, in years past? In the 1990s, let's say, uh, when, when people were, when mutual funds were all the rage and people were buying out the papers, is that the sort of thing where the, the performance chasing and, and hot hands has perhaps uh, dissipated? Or is it sort of showing up in terms of asset classes as opposed to managers? What would you say are the differences maybe compared to 25 or 30 years ago today? Well, you, you, I think you nailed it there. The performance chasing has gone from personalities. You know, which manager was hot? I mean, I could riff, riff names on you like, like you know, who, who the stars of the moment were, but I'll just date myself if I do that. Now it, now it is very much sectoral. Oh, is it AI? Is it crypto? Is it cannabis? Mm -hmm. Um, is it biotech? Um, you know, is it in on internet security? Uh, people were very much uh, in 2021, uh, you know, a boom year. People were totally wired into that sort of thing. And, you know, you saw the asset management company, ETFs and mutual funds introduce products to help you play that sector. And they initially did pretty well. Um, and that's just a hazard of investing. I don't think we're ever going to inform people well enough to protect them from getting carried away when there is a craze or a boom or a trend that's just running running rampant. Uh, you know, this, this feeling of missing out is so powerful. One of the things I talk about in the book, Bullshift, is how uh, optimism bias can actually be harmful for your personal finances because a lot of people think, oh, things are going to be great. And a lot of that thinking comes from people who give advice encouraging people to take a long-term view and everything is going to be fine. Do you have any thoughts about the, uh, the way people sort of consider the current events as they unfold? 
So if there's a rate hike or if there's a jobs report and, and whatever might be in the news on any given day and, and use that to inform their decision the next time they have money to invest. You know, I, I think the, um, you know, I, I definitely think that the investment industry has a vested interest in keeping people calm and believing that in the long term, it's all going to be fine and you don't have to worry about things and just stay compliant, stay invested. Right. Um, but the past three years, because of the pandemic, has made people a lot more twitchy. There's more anxiety. And I think telling people the same old things and just sit tight, it's all going to be okay. That doesn't, doesn't resonate maybe quite like it once did. So uh, <clears throat> I'm interested to see how it all plays out. You know, there's like so many, uh, so many strange, uh, you know, factors in play right now that we've never seen before. You know, we keep saying, you know, the last time rates went up, the last time we had inflation, but the reasons why these things happened last time were much different than they are today. So I think we're really in uncharted territory. So behaviorally, I mean, I, I think we're, we're, you know, in an experimental period where um, we don't know how sticky money is. We don't know all this money that's sitting in cash. Where it, Where's it going to go? Are people going to get overconfident and drain down their cash and put mm -hmm. it into, uh, into a, a sector, into housing? That's another thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> that's another thing that could, uh, play a big role in the finance of the nation as well. So um, I, I, well, I do think that, um, you know, behaviorally, you know, the industry is trying to coach people to just screen it all out right now. They've taken in so much stimuli that I don't think that actually works anymore. Like you can't tell people to calm down now. They're, yeah. they're feeling what they feel. Ray Dalio's most recent book, uh, Lessons for a Changing World Order talks about how there are a lot of things that have repeated in history, but although they have repeated, they re repeat over the centuries, but if they haven't repeated in our lifetime, if you or I or the people listening to the podcast have never experienced it, it's hard for us to imagine what it might look like. And so there are things that I would point to, such as uh, a 40 year long bull run in, in bonds because of interest rates coming down so much. Yeah. Uh, and and then uh, and then the stimulus, the fiscal stimulus that we've gotten from governments all around the world as a result of the what I call the COVID playbook of bringing interest rates down to zero and sending everyone a check. Uh, and it did a great job of, of averting a public health crisis and of averting what would have likely been an economic crisis. But what it did instead was it started pumping air <clears> into <throat> the bubbles, a, a housing bubble and, and I would argue a stock market bubble. And I don't know how much investors are mindful of the risks that they might be taking come the middle of 2023. And I don't know how mindful of advi advisors are about the risks they might be unwittingly allowing their clients to take. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I think that the, you know, what you're talking about is a niche view and it is in no way representative of what the investment industry and advisors that I deal with are thinking. It's all about it's all about this sort of golden normal uh, aspect of things where you have stocks are going up about five or 6% a year on average, bonds are gonna be going up two or 3% on average, cash is gonna give you one to two, one to, uh, one to 2%. I mean, you know, I'm thinking those financial planning uh, uh, return guidelines, which, which yeah. I think the 2023 version came out and it's like super calm, you know, like, yes, you might have drama one year on the bad side, but you're going to have offsetting drama on the good side in a, in a future. There's no talk about what you're, what you're talking about. It's a contrarian view. And um, I think it is, uh, 
I think it is not reflected in 95 to 97% of the chatter and analysis and strategy that I'm reading from the industry. And that's the whole point about the risk of optimism bias. People don't really think of that as being a risk because up until now, uh, I would say 19 times out of 20, being optimistic is good for uh, the industry and it's good yeah. for investors because it keeps them calm when you deal with garden variety drawdowns. The problem that we may or may not, well, at some point we're going to uh, reach it where we're going to encounter a point where markets have a significant and prolonged drawdown. I don't know when that will be. Nobody knows, but it's going to happen at some point. And my, my, my fear is that we've sort of been coddled and, and the industry is largely <clears throat> responsible for coddling their, their clients into thinking that things will be fine no matter what. And if you take a long-term view, you'll get through it. But one example that I like to give is people who are invested in Japanese real estate or in Japanese stocks in the late 1980s, as we sit here in the middle of 2023, still haven't gotten back to where they were in 1989. And, yeah. you know, when we're talking about taking a long term view, just how long are we talking here? And I just wonder what you think about that. Well, I think that you're, you're really on to something here because I, I think, you know, if, you're, if your experience of investing was the financial crisis in 08, 09, and the pandemic, uh, those are two big monster drops in the, in the stock market, but they healed themselves pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, central banks were at the ready, pouring cash in as required. You know, basically it was all hands on deck to protect the system. Um, and I think if you count on, oh, if there's a big stock market decline, it'll, it'll just, you know, reverse itself in, in 12 months. Um, that is the bias that I think it, it's it's dangerous because, you know, you think about um, the federal government's wherewithal to to pour cash into the system. Um, if there's another, if there's a recession or a or a severe recession, if you think there's another pandemic or another sort of event like that, um, I don't know that the next time around there's the the ambulance is going to be on you know on site and you know very quickly and and get get the economy up and walking again, and that is a risk that's not being talked about. I, I, I can't dispute I can't dispute that. Um, but I think I think what we need to see is a sort of a proactive approach, though. If this happens, here's right. how to structure your portfolio. What right. do you have in your portfolio that might protect you if this happens? Um, and I think that's that that would be a way to get people to grasp onto this a bit more. And um, you know, but you know, to, to circle back, I don't see any talk about any aspect of this from the industry. There's it's all about you know, we'll get through this period of inflation and interest rates will they'll come back down and that will be good for bonds. And well, let's see, how's the economy doing? What will that mean for earnings? And that will determine what happens with stocks. It's like, it's like we just expect this, you know, this, you know, normalcy to reassert itself. And that's a dangerous way of thinking, I think, because, you know, we haven't really had a taste of normal since winter uh, 2020. I think so. That's actually exactly what I've been trying to do with with the book Bullshift is I'm trying to get people to think about how things are, have been very <clears throat> normal for a long time and, and to contemplate as a thought exercise. If, if you had a major drawdown and it was <clears throat> more severe than you've experienced in the past and it lasted longer, how would you react? And if you can do what they call a, as a pre-mortem where you actually think about what would have happened before it happens and then proactively take steps now before we have any kind of a problem, before, before we have any kind of, a, of an economic turmoil, what would you do 
to, to manage that risk. And there are many things that you might wish to do. You might want to go to the uh, shorter term bonds and maybe higher quality bonds. You go to uh, value stocks as opposed to growth stocks. You move your stock positions <clears throat> to other parts of the world, such as maybe emerging markets, you raise cash, you, you do whatever. You find alternative investments that might be non-correlated to the, to the market, whatever you might wish to do. But those are things that I think people should be thinking about in the first half of 2023 because there's now a very strong consensus that we've got a, a recession that's nearly certain to be coming our way uh, later in the year and, and quite likely into, into 2024. But a lot of people are continuing as though they don't need to make any adjustments proactively. They just sort of say, well, we'll react. Well, wait a minute. First off, you don't know what you're going to be reacting to. But secondly, if you really think there's a problem coming, shouldn't you, shouldn't you get ahead of the game and start doing things now? You know, there's, let me give you a little anecdote that, that illustrates what uh, we're up against and trying to make people think that way. You know, every time uh, since uh, the financial crisis, the stock market falls hard, I get emails from seniors saying, do you think the federal government will give us a break on our RIF withdrawals? I don't want to have to sell some stocks or equity funds in my RIF to, uh, to fund my required annual withdrawal. And I keep thinking, has nobody learned anything from any of these situations? You know, to protect yourself against this, to build up a cash hedge in your in your RIF that you will dip into instead of selling a hard hit equity fund. You've got maybe one. I've I've heard advisors and planners say one year, two years, three years worth of of RIF withdrawals in cash, ready to be tapped in case your uh, in case your stocks and your equity funds are down. Uh, and I write the column about that every time and. Every time, I mean, I can always tell, oh, is the stock market down a lot? Oh, there, I'm getting an email from a senior saying, do you think the government's going to give us a break on, on, on our RIF withdrawals? And the government's done that twice, um, but it's a very minor break. And, it, and in no way does it uh, negate the need to be thinking, what happens if the stock market crashes? What happens to my RIF? How am I going to be prepared? That's a general piece of retirement planning to me, but it speaks directly to your, 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 um, you know, your thought about what if it's different this time and we get a prolonged sharp downturn? And I'm, I'm just saying it's hard to get people to orient with that, even when they even when they have a fresh recollection of a previous market drop and how that affected things. I have a I listened to another friend uh, interviewing an acquaintance on a podcast of, of uh, theirs a couple of years ago, and my acquaintance friend was uh, has been uh, ironically was a journalist for some time before he became a, a portfolio manager and his first major drawdown was the COVID drawdown of 2020 and and he talked about how gut-wrenching it was and how <clears throat> really really difficult it was for him to keep his cool and to help him keep his client clients cool from uh, not not getting too emotional and not selling out of a panic and at the end of the interview, he he congratulated himself because he got him, his clients through a really, really tough turmoil. What he didn't say was that the peak to trough drawdown during COVID lasted five weeks from February until March of 2020. Yeah. And then it was over and then markets started going up again. That, that, was, yeah. that was a once in a lifetime market. Yeah. Well, that will yeah. never be repeated. Um, yeah, it's 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 true. You know, in 0809, I that to me is my reference for market carnage. I remember talking to people and their voices were shaking on the phone. Like people were just, you know, they thought this could be the end. Um with COVID, you know, you knew you didn't nobody knew what the heck was going on. So it's like you had bigger concerns in your stock portfolio and your health. But um yeah, I, I I think you know it's been a while since that. 
And even that, even that reversal, once we hit bottom, I think in March 2009, the market just took off like a rocket. And that's yeah. actually, that's some encouragement. You know, the worse the decline, the better the, the better the rebound. And right. I mean, if you have a long-term perspective, I would want to probably put some money in as we, as we track this big downturn that's coming. But, um, you know, I, I think it is hard, hard work to open people's minds to this idea that a big shock could happen. And have you thought about it? And do you have any thought about how arranging your portfolio to um, to survive that? It's it, you know, people don't want to think about stuff like that, especially now. And, and that's why it's so hard to get them to think about it. And just going back to what happened in COVID. People could be guilty of recency bias, which is you you look at what happened last time and you think that the future will replicate the recent past. And because we skated through it so seamlessly and then things began their return to an upward trajectory after only five weeks of drawdown, people think, oh, well, if there's a drawdown again in the future, I'll be able to get through it because I got through it last time not realizing that last time was an extreme anomaly in terms of uh, the, not only the speed of the drop, but also the shortness of uh, how, how long it took before it resumed its trajectory. Just keeping in that theme with regard to what happened in COVID and with what Ray Dalio talks about in terms of uh, generational changes that we don't even realize because they've happened before, but not in our lifetime. Nurio Rubini has a book out that came out in late 2022 called Mega Threats. And Rubini has been, people make fun of him, they call him Dr. Doom because he talks about all these negative things yeah. about uh, implicit uh, uh, regular debt bubble, debt, uh, debt uh, loads, but also uh, implicit debt loads with regard to demographics. And then the challenges of AI and the challenges of climate change and all of these things converging at the same time and causing uh, political turmoil and, and uh, people you know, unhappy about uh, income and wealth disparity. What I'm wondering about is if you were to give advice to people to help them to come to terms with what would you really do, getting back to what we talked about five or 10 minutes ago with, as a pre-mortem, how would you encourage uh, an investor today to think about what could go wrong and what they would do and, and to encourage them to take action, any kind of action whatsoever now if they want to get in front of this? You know, it's extremely hard because I know the investment industry hasn't really cracked this. I mean, they have these risk questionnaires. How would you feel if, you know, right. option A, B and C? And they're so abstract, you know what, unless you're feeling the pain or it's close to you, you can't really make a you can't really make a choice. And, and I think my experience is people are always going to pick an option that they are going to pick an option that suggests they can take more pain than they can actually accept. So you've got to wake people up somehow to. To, to get in touch with their risk tolerance beyond just sort of, would you prefer a 5% decline or a 10% decline? <clears throat> you know, with, you know, with uh, offsetting possible gains in the stock market. I, I think what you have to do is you have to sort of, rather than try to scare them, you've got to show them portfolio building techniques and strategies and make it proactive. You've got to say, the asset allocation for the next 10 years is a little different than what you've known. I mean, everybody was talking in 2021 and 2022 about, you know, 60, 40 was dead and, you know, bonds were getting toasted and, you know, you don't want, you want to minimize those in your, in your portfolio. And everybody thought they were so smart. Oh, I'm just going to use dividend stocks instead of bonds. Well, um, what is the asset allocation for the next leg for the, you know, for the, you know, if, you know for the mega threats era? 
what is it? And how, you know, what is the what is the uh, breakdown of the fixed income? And what is the breakdown of the equity? And I feel if I were to want to wise people up, that's how I would want to approach it. Rather than being the doomsayer, I would like to be the helpful guy who says, I think it might be tough out there in the next 10 years. This is a this is an asset allocation that I think really makes sense. And that way, at least people can, rather than just sort of thinking, oh, risk, oh, my portfolio, how do they connect? You're showing them, you're, you're giving them a map to right. or an instruction manual to uh, to address it. So, um, uh, and you know what? I think it's wide open out there to present that sort of view. It's it's really hasn't. It's not being talked about much. The threats are known. Uh, we all feel a sense of unease about how things are going in various aspects of the world and the country. Um, and how's this going to play out on our investments? Um, we haven't connected the two, so that's wide open. Great. All right. So I think that's that's fair. And I, I think that's exactly what needs to be done. It's ironic because I've been trying to get people to have that conversation and I share your frustration. People don't want to hear it and, and people are, are just they're happy and they just don't want to be reminded of things being potentially difficult. And that's that's potentially. But I to my mind, it's it's way better to talk about what could go wrong before things actually start going wrong, because that's when you can do the most good to counteract it and, and to you know make, make things better for people's lives. I want to wrap up, Rob, because I know you're a busy guy. I want to, I always finish the podcast with, uh, with two segments. And the first is called that's bullshit. If you could think about one thing in a, in a finance industry that you've experienced over the course of your long career, what would you say sort of still sticks in your craw about the industry that you would like to see be done differently? It's resistance to working to a fiduciary standard. The advice business is resistance to a fiduciary standard. You know, John, I was at a conference years and years and years ago uh, about fiduciary standard. It was back when the OSC was considering whether to how to approach that sort of thing. And there was a lawyer representing some big investment firms got up and just trashed the idea of fiduciary duties. If it was stupid, foolish nonsense and no sane, smart people would ever imagine such a thing. And I remember thinking, what a world they live in. They've told themselves <laughs> stories about why this it's a bad thing to put your client first. You know, and they had other other you know phrasings to you know as an alternative to that, and that really crystallized to me. You know what? They don't want that because it ties their hands. But I think you know if I was if I was if I was the king, that's what we'd have: fiduciary duty for all advisors. All right, so then let's let's flip that on its side and and then talk about because people don't want uh, to, I don't want to be only negative all the time. Let's let's talk about something positive. The second half of the uh, the end of the podcast is shift happens. If you could make anything to change. Uh, and that could be the fiduciary uh, duty, but if you could change something else, what would you change and how would you do it? I would, put, I, I would, I would say all planners, advisors, uh, wealth consultants and coaches and everybody else has to work to a fiduciary standard. We articulate what it is and everything you say and tell your client is going to be measured against that. And so all your high price proprietary funds and all that stuff, prepare to say goodbye to it because it won't fly in a, in a fiduciary world. Uh, but I think if you want to give people confidence and get a lot more clients, that's the way to go. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure, as always. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you so much for joining uh, Bullshift, the podcast. Enjoyed the chat, John. Thanks for inviting me. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.